Well, my name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm up here to welcome you, to say welcome, and to remind us that the reason that we gather is not just to do, like, the 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 duty of the week, right? I think sometimes we get locked into thinking this is just part of uh, part of our rhythm, but it's, it's more than that. We intentionally come together as God's people to celebrate who Christ is, his supremacy, and to set aside this day to say, God, you are worthy of everything. You are worthy of our attention, our praise. And a, a nice, happy sort of peripheral thing with that is that we get to be with one another and encourage one another and share our stories. That's, that's why we gather together, to make much of Jesus and to do that as a group of people. So if you're new around here, we say to you, welcome, and we're, we're glad that you're here with us, and we always want to invite you to connect with us in a deeper way, and it's very easy to do that. Uh, there's a card in the seat back in front of you. One side says welcome with information slots on it. The other side says prayer, and we always love if someone will fill both of those out, and you can drop them in the offering plate, or you can take them to the welcome desk, and it helps us be able to know how to connect with you as, as one who's on a journey with Christ or even seeking Christ. And the other way that we do that is technologically, and uh, that's very easy. You text WELCOME to 319-320-1834, and if you're unsure how to use, uh, use your, your uh, smartphone in the right way, just look around and see if there's a teenager close to you, and they can certainly help you with that, right? Uh, I found they are very adept at that, and I am not. Um, I'm also here to tell you about fall programming, like what we're doing this fall, as uh, I know many of you are busy if you have, especially if you have kids in school, especially if you have kids in school that are spread out over a variety of ages, you know that like the, the bottom has dropped out or will drop out on Monday where you just feel busy and overwhelmed. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? Okay. So we always want to remind people that the reason that we do programming here at Stonebridge and our faith community is not for the intent of keeping people busier. In fact, sometimes we can load our schedules up with even good things that keep our uh, attention away from Jesus, even if it's stuff that's supposed to focus on Jesus, right? That's how that works sometimes. And so we want to make sure that, that we know that we're not just doing things to be about busy work. But we are intentionally trying to accomplish our mission, which as a church is to walk alongside each person we meet as they take their next step with Jesus. And the way that we, we can do that is, is really three main areas. One is relationship, right? If you're going to walk with someone, you need to be open to some form of relationship, even when you first meet one another, that you're relationally being connected with them. If you have no relationship with someone, it, it's hard to walk with them. So we want to grow in our relationships. We also want to grow in our knowledge of specifically Scripture, Right? As we know the, God's Word more and more and more, we know more about Christ, and we know more about how to live out His mission of going into all nations and making disciples. So you have to have biblical knowledge. And the third thing is availability, and that's where our calendars sort of come in, right? If you're not available, you can't make disciples, right? And many of us get caught in, in a lack of availability or a lack of knowledge or a lack of relationship opportunities, and, and it's hard for us to walk with other people. And in fact, it's hard on our own walk. And our values here sort of shape our experience. We've got four major values, and one of them is building community over busy calendars, right? One of them is eternal truth over empty talk. We also value Christ over comfort and value sharing our gifts and blessings instead of 
sort of hoarding them or stealing them. And with all of those things, we want everything that we do around here to be directed by those values. And so when we talk about fall programming, the offerings that we have, especially in terms of educational opportunities, you guys uh, might have seen these booklets, the learning opportunities at Stonebridge Church. This is a lot of what's happening in the fall. And we want to emphasize that there are a variety of opportunities for you to, to learn in many different ways, to learn scriptural knowledge, to learn about building relationships with people, and to learn about making your calendar all about bringing the maximum glory to Jesus Christ in your life. And so we want to help you, as many people as possible, build relationships, understand Scripture, and learn to prioritize our lives about bringing glory to God. And so we do that in children's ministry uh, by gathering here on the weekends and on Wednesday nights and helping kids understand that Jesus shows up in all of Scripture, that all of Scripture is about Christ. And we encourage families to take that information that our kids are getting on the weekends to go home to memorize Scriptures, to help reinforce those things as, as parents should, as families should. Uh, in our youth ministry at Stonebridge students, what we desire is to mentor uh, middle school and high school students so that they can become disciple makers as they grow older. So by the time they graduate from high school, our hope is that they would already have been making disciples and that they would go into college ready to take that on in a different venue. Uh, in our life groups, we're encouraging believers to get together. If you're not in a life group currently, we would say get in a life group. I know it's scary. I know sometimes it's awkward. But let's be honest. Relationships are always better when they start awkwardly, aren't they? Amen? Anybody? That's my, my, my perspective is always go into it full awkward, and it can only go up from there. Okay? And then learning opportunities. If you would just jump into a class, there's so many classes, educational opportunities that we have to help you take your next step or maybe even bring somebody along with you, build relationships, make yourself available, and learn together at the same time. But wherever you're at in life, we want you to get involved as the fall kicks off in a way that's not just packing your calendar, but intentionally making everything in life about Christ and walking with one another as we all take our next steps with Jesus. Yes? All right. On that note, we're going to read the scripture for this morning. Pastor Robin's going to come up and walk us through the, the scripture text for this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand with us as Robin comes up, and we're going to read through God's Word. If you have a Bible or electronic device, I encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 15. I'm going to be reading the passage of Scripture we're focusing on this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's hopefully one underneath the seat in front of you. You're welcome to utilize that. Mark chapter 15, I'll be reading the first 20 verses. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. 
And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. This is God's word. You may be seated. As we continue in worship together, let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open up our eyes, that we can see and understand our need for a Savior. And Lord, we also thank you as we think about what Keith shared, how important relationships are our relationship with you, our relationship with one another. And Lord, as we begin our fall ministries, help us also to grow in knowledge, knowledge of your word, knowledge of who Jesus is, knowledge of what Jesus did for us. And then, Lord, help us to consider our availability. There are so many things that are shouting and clamoring for our attention. They're so distracting. We're so busy. Lord, help us to know what the main thing is and keep our focus and energy on that. And Father, this is the time of the year when school is starting. And I pray for all the students and teachers. I pray for the students that you would bless them with peace, with strength, and with courage as they begin a new year. I also pray for the teachers. Help each one of them to understand the influence and the impact that they have on their students. It was my high school English teacher, Mrs. Daywalt, that helped me take my next step toward Jesus. And I am eternally grateful and Father, we confess we need you, your healing, your forgiveness. We have done things, we have said things this past week 
that have hurt you and have hurt others, would you forgive us? And Lord, we need to understand and embrace the good news that through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, forgiveness and lasting change is possible. And Father, I pray for each person here, and I pray especially for those who are struggling, carrying a heavy burden. May you help them understand that you are a very present help in time of trouble, and may you reach down with your victorious right hand and lift them up. And Lord, as Brandon shares your word with us, as he shares that all of humanity, including all of us, bear the guilt of Jesus' death, and we need to acknowledge our sin and confess it to you. And Father, I thank you for the generosity of this church and how through our giving, we're able to support and partner with missionaries and mission organizations, both globally and locally. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, who gave everything for us. Amen. Thanks, Robin. And as the uh, ushers are collecting the offering, I invite you to find your Bibles again and make your way to Mark chapter uh, 14. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark this morning, what we've called Defining Jesus. We have been after the question of just who is Jesus, the, this person whom we uh, gather to worship, in whose name we pray. Uh, who are we talking about? Not who do I think he is, who do I want him to be, who do others say that he is, but who is Jesus really? Who has he revealed himself to be in history according to Scripture? And this morning we're looking at a rather large chunk, chapter 14, verse 1, all the way to 15, verse 20. So it'll be helpful if you've got your Bible in front of you to be able to, to follow along as we look at the story. And we're coming to the end of the story in Mark's gospel, to the climax of his book. And you may have noticed this if you've been reading along, uh, that the closer we get to the end, the faster the pace becomes, and the more out of control the story kind of begins to feel. Uh, it's taken us several weeks to look at the, the chapters leading up to the conclusion, but it's good to remember that what's covered in the last six, chap six chapters of the book really happens in just a few days, even hours for parts of it. And it happens rather quickly and rather chaotically. As Mark tells the story, it feels a bit like teaching a, a teenager how to drive a car. There, there comes this moment when they begin to feel familiar with the car, and so they give it some gas, and you take off through the church parking lot, because that's where everybody teaches their kids how to drive, right? And if you're sitting there in the passenger side, you want to grab that wheel, because all of a sudden, you're going too fast, and this feels out of control. Something bad's going to happen. That's what the conclusion of Mark's gospel feels like. 
I mean, just days ago, Jesus was greeted at the gates of Jerusalem as a king, as the answer to God's plan of salvation. In our text this morning, over the span of just a few hours, he goes from being worshipped in a private home to celebrating Passover in an upper room to praying in a garden and then being betrayed and arrested in that garden standing trial in the Sanhedrin, being publicly condemned at the Roman palace, and then delivered over to crucifixion. And when the dust finally settles later at the end of this chapter, and the part we're going to look at next week, Jesus will be dead. The light of the world snuffed out. And one of the questions that this passage invites us to ask amid the swirling chaos is quite simply, who did it? Who killed Jesus? On, on whose shoulders do we hang the greatest tragedy of human history? Who done it? And what does that reveal to us about who Jesus is? How we define Him? So imagine, if you will, a game of Clue. You know, all of the suspects are gathered together, a murder has been committed, and someone in this room is guilty. Now, we know the murder weapon and the place. We know it was on a cross at Golgotha, but who is the culprit? Is it Pilate, the Roman governor? Is it the crowds or the chief priests and elders? Is it Judas or someone else who killed Jesus? Now, of course, someone will point to the obvious fact that the Roman soldiers did it, right? Like they were the executioners. They were the ones whose hands held the nails and the hammer. Case closed, right? Easy. The soldiers did it. But not so fast. If you notice the last phrase of chapter 15, verse 15, it says, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. See, Jesus was delivered over to the guards, to the soldiers. In fact, that word deliver over, sometimes it's translated betrayed, sometimes it's translated handed over. It's really a key word in this passage. It shows up 10 times in our story how Jesus was betrayed and delivered over. So, so who's responsible for delivering him over? Who's responsible for his death? Well, like an investigator, you start with the crime scene and then you work your way backwards, right? You retrace the criminal's steps. And since the he in verse 15 was Pilate, he delivered him over, we'll start there. Pilate is suspect number one. Pontius Pilate. He was a Roman governor of Samaria and Judea. And it's important to remember that, that in the days of Jesus, Jerusalem and Judea was occupied territory. Uh, Rome, there was under Roman rule and jurisdiction. That's one of the reasons why the Jews were so excited about the promise of a Messiah, someone who's finally going to kick Rome out and give us our country back. It's also why the followers of Jesus were beginning to get more and more distraught the more and more it looked like he was losing. I thought God was going to deliver us finally. 
And so imagine Pilate, this Roman governor, taking the stand as an investigation begins. You know, the the traditional question, where were you on the day of Jesus' crucifixion? Pilate would reply, I was in my palace, the, the headquarters, the praetorium. And if you were to ask him, did you kill Jesus? He would no doubt say, as he says in Matthew 27, 24, quote, I am innocent of this man's blood. I mean, yes, I examined him. The Jewish authorities accused him of insurrection against Caesar, but he made, you know, no response, which is pretty remarkable considering the charges. I was not convinced of his guilt. My wife warned me not to have anything to do with him, so I tried to let him go. I tried to let him go, but the crowds, the crowds, they demanded that instead I release this rebel named Barabbas. And so, talk to the crowds. This is what they wanted, and they would have rioted to get it. Pilate enters a plea of not guilty in the matter. And so, the investigation moves on to suspect number two, the crowds. Let's talk to the crowds. And when you look at the story, the evidence for the crowds does not look good. Uh, It is true that when Pilate asked them if if they wanted him to release Jesus or this other rebel and murder, they chose Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, well, then what should I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. And as Matthew records in 27-25, they went so far as to say, His blood be on us and on our children. The crowd of Judeans outside Pilate's headquarters claims responsibility for Jesus' death. It would appear that we have a confession. Again, case closed, right? We've got a confession. But once again, not so fast. If you you take a look at verse 11, chapter 15, verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. So apparently the crowd wasn't working alone. Maybe not even expressing their own ideas. So we better talk to the chief priests and elders and find out. That's suspect number three, the religious leaders. The chief priests and the elders sit together with scribes from the Pharisees on a council called the Sanhedrin. It's the Jewish governing authority over Judea. And they have been trying to get rid of Jesus since at least chapter 3. Our passage begins by revealing their premeditated plot to take Jesus out. If you look back at chapter 14, verses 1 to 2, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. They had a premeditated plot to kill Jesus. And they're the ones who had him arrested in the garden. They're the ones who held trial, uh, you know, created a sham trial, really, to convict Jesus of, of anything they might 
consider worthy of the death penalty. It didn't matter what the charge was. Let's just pin something on him. They, they pull together some false witnesses, and these liars can't even tell the same lie. And so until fin- Jesus finally confesses that he is the Son of God, they charge him with blasphemy because claiming to be that son, if that's not true, that would be making yourself equal with God, that would be slandering God, and so that's the angle they take. The chief priests and the elders, the religious leaders, the most spiritual people in Judea, the religious leaders of God's covenant people are clearly guilty according to this passage. They're the ones who deliver Jesus over to Pilate chapter 15, verse 1, which again is that key word, deliver or betray, and even Pilate suspected foul play. Like, he knew there was something fishy here. 15, verse 10, he perceived it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So, the religious leaders are guilty, but their plan could only work if they could get Pilate on board. Only Rome had the authority to execute criminals. The Jewish council couldn't do that under their op- uh, occupation, which is why when the, when the religious leaders brought Jesus to Pilate, instead of charging him with blasphemy as they'd found him guilty of in the Sanhedrin, a, a religious charge, they charged him to Pilate with insurrection, a political charge, trying to create a rebellion. Luke tw- uh, 23 verse 2 says, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They they play the political angle before Pilate to get him on board. And the crowds actually play the exact same card in John 19, 12, telling Pilate, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar's. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So, Pilate had to be on board, and the crowds helped get him on board. So, perhaps they're not, or Pilate's not, as innocent as he claims. But neither could the religious leaders' plan work if Jesus was not first delivered over to them. And so, there's yet another layer at which this crime must be investigated. There's another suspect, a fourth suspect, namely Judas, Judas Iscariot. Judas was one of Jesus' twelve disciples. He was part of the inner circle. He traveled with Jesus. He listened to all of the teaching. He saw with his own eyes the signs and the wonders that Christ performed. Yet in the end, he chose to sell out his Lord for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave in the Old Testament. And we learn of his plot in chapter 14, verse 10, which includes the first two uses of that key word, betray, or deliver over in our passage. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Think about what that's saying. Judas wasn't approached by the religious leaders. They didn't flip him against Jesus. He took the initiative and sought them out and then delivered. 
Judas becomes henceforth known forevermore as the betrayer. That's his nickname, the betrayer. And so when all of the evidence is weighed, who done it? Who is guilty of Jesus' death? Is it Pilate? He's guilty. He can claim innocence, but he's the one on whose authority Jesus was crucified. He's the one who gave way to fear and self-protection instead of doing what he actually knew to be right. Guilty. How about the crowds? Guilty. I mean, regardless of whether they were pawns or genuine opponents, they played their role in demanding Jesus' death, and they took responsibility for it. They're guilty. How about the religious leaders, the chief priests, the elders? It's an easy one, right? They're guilty. They've been plotting Jesus' death for years. They knowingly manipulated their own legal system. They knowingly ignored evidence of who Jesus is in order to get rid of him and keep power in their own court. How about Judas? Guilty. He was no victim, but a perpetrator working his own angle, serving his own greed, betraying one of his closest friends for financial gain. At the end of the day, everybody in this passage is guilty. Which raises a question. What if the point of this passage is not to hang the guilt of Jesus' death on any one person or party, but to show us the sweeping scope of guilt, a guilt that all humanity bears together, even you and me, even you and me. Now, you, you might say, how can I be guilty of Jesus' death? I wasn't there. I mean, how old do you think I am, right? But think of the reason Jesus died. The fact that this wasn't an accident, that though Jesus was brutally victimized, He was no one's victim, but He laid His life down willingly. Why? As a sacrifice for sins. Jesus died for sins, which means if you're a sinner, you killed Jesus. We're all guilty. I mean, Mark shows the, the guilt of both Jew and Gentile of friend and enemy. No one in this story can claim innocence. The Apostle Paul makes a similar argument on an even broader scale in Romans 3. Romans 3, 9 through 12, he says, "'What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all.'" For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it's written, none, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for good, seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We're all guilty of sin. And so here's the verdict. Because everyone is a sinner, everyone is guilty of Jesus' death. 
I mean, even the rest of the disciples in the story are guilty. I mean, they, they may not have been chanting, crucify him with the crowd, but every single one of them fell away on account of Jesus because of their relationship with Jesus, just as he said that they would. I mean, from Peter's self-righteous bravado kind of declaring, even if these other clowns uh, fall away, I'm never going to do that. I will go down with you to the death to their self-absorbed indifference as they fall asleep in the garden while their Lord is wrestling in prayer in the darkest hour of His life, to their crude self-preservation when they flee from Jesus because it's no longer safe to be near Him, to Peter's self-condemning denial where he literally invokes the curse of God upon himself if he's lying about not knowing Jesus. They're all guilty. And we are too. We are too. If, if by sin we mean rebellion against God, most basic definition, then any thought that I have, any word that I speak or action that I do or refuse to do that, that somehow dishonors God or disregards or disobeys His word or rejects His design that takes credit for something that only God deserves credit for, or treats something more valuable than God Himself, anything that brings harm to someone else, or makes much of myself at the expense of others, any way that I fail to exhibit the perfect and holy character of God, if that's what we mean by sin, we're all guilty. We're all guilty. A, a fit of rage in traffic snapping impatiently at a whiny child, helping myself to office supplies at work, cheating on a paper or a test, cheating on my taxes, cheating on my spouse, prioritizing my goals and dreams over God's Word, refusing to forgive someone who seeks repentance because I want them to feel the pain they caused me caring more about my body image than the body of Christ, taking a good thing like money or marriage or sex or alcohol or grades or sports or career or house or car or friend or anything, taking a good thing and treating that like God such that that's where I go for my hope and my security and my identity and my enjoyment and my satisfaction, even though God's the only one who can provide all that, and the only one who's worthy. So I may not have been there in the crowd shouting crucify Him or on that hill watching Him die, but I tell you, in my sin, I am guilty. I killed Jesus. And so did you. Martin Luther said, Doubt not, that you are the one who killed Christ. Your sins certainly did. And when you see the nails driven through His hands, be sure that you are pounding. And when the thorns pierce His brow, know that they are your evil thoughts. Consider that if one thorn pierced Christ, you deserve 100,000. So great is our iniquity before a holy God. It's a sober sober picture, right? 
I mean, this is, this is not the positive and encouraging stuff I thought I was going to get. But it's real. It's real, and yet it's not the full part of the story either, is it? Because we have to remember not just that Christ died for sins, but why He died for sins. He died to set us free, right? Not to bury us in guilt, but to deliver us from that guilt. He died to save the sinner who caused his death, to show his love, to fulfill his Father's plan, to set us free from that guilt and shame, to do it through the cross. That's where, that's where the story of Mark is going. And that's what we come to understand when we own and acknowledge the fact that we are all guilty in his death, that, that Jesus is a willing and loving Savior. That, that our complicity didn't say, wow, you guys missed your opportunity. That, I'm done. I'm out. But instead, He gave Himself willingly and lovingly. And He didn't do it by pretending that sin was no big deal, but rather by taking the whole weight of it on Himself to deliver us and reconcile us to God. We're going to talk more about that next week when we look at the crucifixion and resurrection at the end of Mark's gospel, but we can already see in our passage this aim of Christ's death, not to condemn us, but to deliver us, to set us free. For instance, you think about chapter 14. What in the world are they doing having a party in the midst of this train wreck of betrayal? I mean, chapter 14 they plan a party and have it together. They celebrate the Passover. Why would you do that? Jesus knows he's about to die. Why is he sending people to make preparations for this, this meal? Because his death is inextricably related to Israel's Passover. It is, in fact, the fulfillment of Israel's Passover. The party tells you what, me, what Jesus and his death means. And if you are familiar with the story, or you can go back later and read in Exodus 12, the Passover celebrated the deliverance of God's people from slavery in Egypt. Each family was to take a spotless lamb and sacrifice it and then put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts and on the lintel, the, the cross piece above, so that when God sent out His destroyer to deal with sin through the, the plague of the firstborn, he would pass over the homes that are covered by the blood. Because God, the Passover doesn't just deliver Israel from Egypt. It delivers Israel from judgment for sin. And because they were guilty, they too had to be covered. They needed a substitute. The lamb dies in place of the firstborn, which is exactly what Jesus is about to do for all nations. That's why when they celebrate that Passover, Jesus takes that meal and reinterprets it around himself because he's the true Passover lamb, what we call the Lord's Supper. We see the same thing in his prayer in the garden. So if you look at his prayer in chapter 14, verse 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. 
Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. As Jesus is praying about his crucifixion, he describes it as a cup. We talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago, how in the Old Testament, the cup is not merely a metaphor for suffering, but for God's wrath against sin. It's his holy anger against evil and sin. Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, there's lots of places it's used. And, And so as our substitute, Jesus was about to willingly take on himself the full weight of God's holy justice against all evil and sin. All of hell for all people in a single moment. And you can understand why he's distraught and and almost can't go forward in that moment. It nearly overwhelms him. Charles Spurgeon describes it like this. The whole of the punishment of his people was distilled into one cup, No mortal lip might give it so much as a solitary sip. When Jesus put it to his own lips, it was so bitter, he well nigh spurned it. Let this cup pass from me. But his love for his people was so strong that he took the cup in both his hands and at one tremendous draft of love, he drank damnation dry. Jesus drank damnation dry. All of that guilt we were just talking about, he took all of it in one act of love. And he did it willingly. He did it willingly. In fact, there's nothing in this story that Jesus doesn't do willingly. There's nothing in the story that he doesn't do out of love for his father or obedience to his father or love for us. As he says in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. As he says before the Sanhedrin here in Mark 14, 62, when they ask, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? He says, I am. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven, which is language of the royal vindication of God's Son from Daniel 7. This is all according to plan. The car has not lurched out of control all of a sudden. Jesus is exercising His rule As the true king of heaven and earth, he's establishing his cosmic justice against all sin, evil, hatred, and death, and he's doing it by willingly being betrayed and delivered over to crucifixion. And his death is enough. His death is enough. We don't find our rescue from our guilt by cleaning up our own life or, or, or trying harder or going to do good things for God to make it up to Him. You can't make up that kind of guilt. We find our rescue from our sin by trusting in Jesus' perfect life and sacrifice for us. 
It's his blood that makes us clean. I mean, the, the, the old hymn, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. You want to know how? His blood availed for me. And, and understand, hear what that means. That though all of us stand before God guilty of our sin, and therefore guilty of the death of Christ, there is grace, there is mercy, there is forgiveness, there is wholeness and redemption for all who turn away from sin and trust in Jesus. That's the whole point. Though all humanity bears the guilt of Jesus' death, He gave His life in willing obedience to the Father to bring us back to God. And so what do we do with our guilt then? What do we do with this guilt? I mean, if, if I killed Jesus, but He died for my sins, what do I do with the guilt I rightly bear? Well, first... We need to own it. We need to own it. To acknowledge with broken hearts the true ugliness of our sin and confess it to God. To own our guilt before a holy Savior. Some of us may um, be a bit like the Jewish leaders. We're not convinced we've done anything wrong. We've devoted our whole life to serving God, and we're quite happy actually making the rules. And if Jesus continues to try and interfere with that, we're quite happy to see him go. And if Jesus isn't who he says he is, what's the big deal? But if he is, then you owe him your loyalty. And that begins by owning your disloyalty and grieving over it. Some of us may be a bit more like Pilate, unwilling to acknowledge the full weight of our guilt or confess the role that we've played. We're eager to shift the blame, you know, to point out how bad they are over there. Or some of us might be like the disciples who presume upon their history with Jesus that because they've spent a lot of time with Him, there's no way they're going to mess up and fall. And yet no one is immune we all fall short of His glory. We all need to own our guilt in all its ugliness. But you can't stop there. That's the bad news. There's also good news. Second, we need to receive from God the grace that He offers through faith in Christ. Some of us are tempted to respond more like Judas. We recognize our guilt, our hearts even break over it, but instead of turning to Jesus for forgiveness, we punish ourselves as if to atone for our own sin. We view our sin as too ugly, too horrible, too gross, too shameful and disgusting to ever be forgiven by God. Friends, I plead with you, do not sell the blood of Christ so short. As great as your sin is or may be, it is never greater than His grace. Never. 
His grace is enough. And so third, we we own our sin, we receive His grace. Third, we need to respond to that grace in worship. Respond to His grace in worship. There's one character in our story that stands out. Not that she isn't guilty as well. In fact, she owns her guilt. She knows her guilt. She knows Christ's mercy, and it moves her to extravagant worship. The woman at the beginning of the story in chapter 14, verses 3 through 9, who takes this alabaster flask of ointment made from pure nard with worth tens of thousands of dollars in our day. And she breaks it and pours it over Jesus' head. This jar that was likely a family heirloom, their greatest treasure, given to Christ in one extravagant act of worship. That would seem like such a waste to so many to give everything to Christ, to devote all we are, all we have to Him. It certainly seems like a waste to the world around us, and oftentimes seems like a waste to some of God's people. The disciples, when they saw this, they thought what she did was a waste. We could have sold that and fed the poor. But the disciples failed to realize both the uniqueness of the moment how she was preparing Jesus for his burial. But more importantly, they failed to understand the worthiness of Christ. Treasuring Christ above everything else is never a waste. It is worship. It is worship. And when we own our guilt and receive his grace, we cannot help but respond in worship. Not just singing to Him. All of life poured out for Christ. So who killed Jesus? We did. What does that reveal about Him? He's a gracious, willing, and loving Savior. What do we do with our guilt? We own it. We receive His grace and we respond in worship. I want to give you some time right now to pray silently, to do business with God. If there is sin in your life that you need to confess to Him, to own and confess, do that. If there is sin in your life that you need to receive his forgiveness for and stop punishing yourself over, do that. But all of us, that we would seek the face of God and the help of the Spirit to apply the grace of Jesus to our lives. I want you to take some time, pray silently, and if if you would like to talk to a pastor or an elder or even just a friend afterwards, Find someone to do that or set up a time for coffee. We'd love to listen and pray with you and help you take your next step with Jesus. So pray to God. This is your time with Him.